Good evening, Village Church. How are we? We're all right. Little fist pump there in the back. Uh, my name is Mitchell. I'm one of the pastors here at Village. Please do keep uh, God's word open in front of you there. Uh, it's my great privilege to be able to take us through the second half of 1 Peter chapter 1 today as a family. Before we get stuck into things, though, why don't we come before God in prayer and let's ask him to uh, just to help us uh, hear from him tonight and understand his word. So please pray with me. Help us, Lord God, to listen well to the voice of your son, Jesus, that we might grow into maturity as his followers. And help me, Holy Spirit, to make what is strange understandable and what is familiar strangely fresh. Amen. All right, quick question. How did you guys spend your Christmas day? Any, any sort of highlights Christmas for you? Just sort of shout it out. The beach, excellent, love that tradition. Down the back, Rebecca? Building a snowman, you were in my home country. Building a snowman on the beach. Anyone else, Christmas day highlight? I beg you. Something, something barbecue. Oh, the Calvin Grove barbecue. Oh, the thing we did. Oh, thanks, Peter. Oh, you're, gold star for you, Peter. <laughs> um, I love that for you, Peter. I, on the other hand, I spent Christmas day in the emergency department. So after the village picnic and before mom and I headed up the coast for Christmas, I spent a few hours in the Royal Brisbane and here's what happened. Thunderstorm had rolled in, leaving the tiles in my front, front porch a bit slippery and wet. I was wearing my uh, new Turbo Crocs that mom got me for Christmas. Don't know if you can see those down the back, another reason why you should sit up the front. Um, wearing my new Turbo Crocs and I'm loading up the car, multiple bags, and sort of that, you know, um, yeah, you, know, you try to do everything in one load. All these bags hanging off me. Step through my front door onto the porch, take one step and feet go out from under me. I sort of do a bit of a slip and slide. Crash into a ceramic pot plant, shatters, shard of uh, ceramic, gashes my arm open. Now, it wasn't serious, all right? The cut wasn't too deep, but it was wide and it did bleed a lot. And I had to resist that male urge of just putting a Band-Aid over it and calling it good. So now I'm in the ED. The nurse gives me absolute sass for my Crocs. Fair enough. She says, oh, did you forget to switch them to sport mode, did you? Um, and then tends to my wound. Now, as I'm lying there on my stomach, I'm thinking, you know, it's a pretty good story, right? It's sort of giving the opening to a Hallmark Christmas special, right? But it wasn't quite a sermon illustration yet. And then it happened. <laughs> As the nurse is fixing up my flesh wound, she notices that it's full of potting mix. And so she tries to flush it out, but she can't, so they give me some local anesthetic, begin to poke around, still can't get it out. So the doc comes back now with something else and they get to work, and the nurse says to me, can you, can, can, can you feel that? I'm like, well, I, you know, I feel a bit of a sensation, but no, I think it's all right. She goes, oh yeah, no, no, if you, if you could feel this, you'd be in agony right now. Look what we're using. And she shows me this um, like, like bristled brush. Like, um, it reminded me of the sort of thing we'd use to like, scrub our boots clean like back on the farm. And she's like, oh, we're, just, we're using this to you know, scrub the wound. I'm like, cool, that's a visual I did not need. In the end, though, they scrub it clean. They glue me shut, send me home with some antibiotics, and we still make the coast in time for Christmas dinner. Now, we come to the part in Peter's letter where he really hones in on purity. That is what it looks like to be clean before God. 
And whoever you are here today, I reckon it's probably something we've all felt at, at, at some level or another, this constant burden of trying to scrub ourselves up spiritually. All right, so for example, uh, whether you're here today not as a Christian, you might be someone whose life consists of making sure that your good deeds outweigh your bad, right, so that you can, I don't know, have a clean conscience and, 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 and sleep easy at night. Or if you are a Christian, maybe you're someone here today whose faith has kind of sort of um, devolved into a, a, a white-knuckling religious duty, you know, if I can just tick the box and get on with life. The curious thing here, though, about Peter's letter is that when he speaks about personal holiness, he always does so in relational terms. That is, because we've been made new as the people of God, we now express this new life through how we love God and love others. That's what we're going to be exploring tonight, how our holiness results in both a love for God and a love for others. All right, so first things first, number one, purity loving God. So purity as a sign, an expression of our love for God. Now, speaking of hospitals, I've never had a baby, but I'm under the impression that when you do have a baby, the hospital kind of sends you home with some instructions, right? Instructions for the newborn. And then as the baby begins to grow into a toddler, the parents establish and reinforce boundaries for acceptable behavior. Now, there's a sense in which Peter picks up on this idea, but with one major difference. You see, these new believers, they've been baptized after living for some time as unbelievers. And so they very easily or naturally bring the behavior of their past life into their newly reborn life. You can see that there in, in, in Peter's setup to the passage. You know, after commanding us to set our hope on the grace of Jesus Christ, back in verse 13, we looked at that um, um, last week, Peter then begins to flesh out what that means. Verse 14, he says, As obedient children, as kids, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. In other words, I think what he's driving at here is that there's, it's not as if an automatic reset button is hit when it comes to your behavior as a Christian. Now, yes, absolutely, you are clean before God because of Christ Jesus. The Bible makes that very clear. But you may still find yourself from time to time desiring things from your former life. And that's why with Christ's Holy Spirit now working in us and the help of our new family, Village Church, we must be holy in all our conduct, which begins by leaving a number of things behind from our past life, leaving some things in the past it's like the time uh, a few months ago I went to a music festival, got absolutely pummeled by the rain. That's my happy face before the rain came. Had to make a midnight bathroom run, so I step out of the tent in the dark. I was wearing socks with sandals, a bit of a theme of mine, and my feet go right under the mud, just ankle deep. So the next morning I was packing up, feeling absolutely defeated. I looked at my dirty, muddy socks in the corner of the tent, you know, caked in mud. I'm just like, nah, there's no way I'm bringing those things home with me. So I threw them in the bin. I literally left them behind. And that's sort of what we're meant to be doing too with our sin, leaving behind any behavior that doesn't, isn't being conformed or shaped by the gospel. Leaving it behind like an irreparably dirty pair of socks. Now, just look how seriously God takes this 
In the next two verses, they come to us as, 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 as commands. Verse 16, for it's written, be holy because I'm holy. In verse 17, conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. When you pull those two verses together, what it's saying to us is, don't be too at home in this world. Yeah? Don't let the culture you find yourself in shape who you are. Rather, reaching back to verse 13 once more, let the hope of God's grace shape you and then make sure that your conduct reflects this change. And the motivation for this is God's own holiness. Right? That's your motivation. So yeah, absolutely, there are going to be times where you're marginalized because of your faith, when you feel as if you aren't able to own some of the achievements that the world owns because you own the name of Jesus. But the motivation here to live lives that are different from the world is that God himself is holy. It's about who he is, what he's done for us, and we're now made to pattern our life after him. That's a big idea. So what does that look like practically, though? We'll dig a little deeper into this at the end with some further application. But just for now, just before we move on, quickly cast your eyes down to verse 22. You have purified yourselves, how? By your obedience to the truth. It just seems so ordinary, doesn't it? No penance to pay, no self-flagellation, no ritualistic washing or burning of sage around the house. Just simple obedience to the word of the Lord, which in verse 25 endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Do you see how this, do you begin to see how this works? Yes, absolutely. When we put our faith in Christ, we become kids of grace. We are washed clean. But now with God's word in our hand and his Holy Spirit in our heart and together with our brothers and sisters in the house of the Lord here at Village, God goes to work slowly and surely conforming us into the image of his son, Jesus. That's the first point, that our purity is an expression of our love for God, a God who did everything to rescue and redeem us from our sin through the power of the gospel. But there's a second aspect to this, isn't there? Not only is our love expressed upward toward God, but there's also an outward expression of our love, or an outward expression of our holiness, sorry, and it's seen in how we love one another. All right, so it brings us to our second point for tonight, constancy, loving others, loving others, from verse uh, 22. Uh, there's this favorite story that my grandma likes to tell from when I was a kid, little kid, maybe four or five. She was taking me and my sister through the shops and uh, bought me a bag of chips to keep me occupied. And um, as you know, I'm sitting in the trolley, she's pushing me around, I'd reach into the bag, pop a chip into my mouth, and I'd say, hope you like the chip, Jesus. And reach in again, pop a chip in my mouth, hope you like the chip, Jesus. One more time, pop a chip into my mouth, hope you like the chip, Jesus. And finally, my exasperated sister, she says, Mitchell, Jesus lives in your heart, not your stomach. Having grown a little older now, some things haven't changed. I'm still obsessed with chips. Chances are I'll swing by IJ on my way home tonight and pick up a bag, eat it in bed. A bit of a ritual of mine, I guess you could say. But other things have changed. 
For example, because I've matured slightly in the faith since I was five, I now know that Jesus, in fact, doesn't live in my stomach. And even though he takes up residence in my heart, I now know it's through uh, spiritual union, not his literal physical home. Uh, these are things I learned reading the Bible. But is that the ultimate sign that I'm being purified by obedience to the word? Right, Sam mentioned the, the, the Bible reading plan. If, you, if you're keeping up with the Bible reading plan, is your main hope that you'll get to the end of the year and know a lot more things about God? You'll know a lot more things about God. And it's not a bad thing, but it's not the primary goal here. It's not the, it's not the primary goal of purification, of purity through the word. In other words, Peter says, the first sign that we have been purified by God's word, it's actually our love for one another. It's our love for one another. And you see that there in the rest of verse 22. Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, to the word of God, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, a cleansed heart, love one another constantly. Now that word there, sincere love, sincere brotherly love, literally reads unhypocritical love. So what's the outward expression that we're growing in holiness through the obedience of, of, of uh, obedience to the truth? Well, the answer is unhypocritical love for each other. You know, part of me wonders whether or not Peter had the Pharisees, other religious teachers in mind here. See, the funny thing is, um, even after Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, poured out his spirit on us, some religious teachers back in Jerusalem were still arguing that in order to be clean before God, even after the death and resurrection of Jesus, you still had to keep the law. You still had to follow the rules that were given in the, in the, in the beginning of, of the Bible. And in Acts chapter 15, you can, you can go read it for yourself, uh, we see Peter go head to head with this issue. And his big argument is simply that the law was given to us in order to show we couldn't keep it. It was a burden that we could not bear. We actually can't achieve purity on our own. But the Pharisees, in believing they could, simply became hypocrites, right? They presented God on the outside while still being riddled with sin on the, on, on the inside. And this was expressed in large part by the way, uh, by, by their total lack of compassion for others, by the way they failed to love others, especially those who sat outside their, their, their boundary marker. And so in striking contrast here in, in, in Peter's letter, Peter says, no, believers have been purified, not just so we can sleep easy at night, but for unhypocritical love. Unhypocritical love. So what does that look like practically? Well, it begins by how we speak to one another. See, once again, Peter, he, he presents the gospel, the, the good news that God preached to us in Christ Jesus, presents the gospel as our pattern to follow. So notice how he sets this up. Verse 22, love one another constantly because you've been born again through the living and enduring word of God. For, verse 24, and then, well, he goes on to quote Isaiah 40, uh, contrasting our dying, fading bodies with the word of the Lord, which endures forever. And this word, he says in verse 25, is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. All right? You love one another constantly because you've been born again through the gospel message. That's what he's saying, isn't it? He's saying that God spoke 
his life-giving message to us in the gospel of Christ. Therefore, we ought to turn around and speak these life-giving words to one another. That's the application in 2 verse 1. Now, Sam, he's gonna, Sam's going to unpack this a bit more next week, so I, I, I won't steal his thunder. He'll, he'll, he'll open up uh, from 2 verse 1, first half of chapter 2. But 2 verse 1 opens with a therefore, and you know I'm always preach the therefores. So just ignore Sam for a second. I think he's outside anyway, so it's, we're fine. Um, take a quick peek at 2 verse 1. Quick peek. Peter says, 2 verse 1, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. See, the really interesting thing here is that the list that Peter gives us aren't the typical sins we're used to hearing when it comes to a talk on purity. Right? You might imagine him to talk here about um, the sexual immorality, drunkenness. But rather, these evils here are all about how it is we speak and relate to one another. It's about the subtly ungodly ways we treat one another. Like trying to manipulate others through lies or half-truths, hoping to, to get what we want. Or being fundamentally discontent with someone else's gifts or talents, hoping, wishing that they'll fail or mess up so that we can feel better about ourselves. Or speaking untruthfully about others, right? Just slandering their name, ruining their reputation. Do you see, our purity, the big idea here the, is that our purity is a result of obedience to the word, and obedience to the word results in love for one another, and our love is primarily expressed through sincerity, which is the antidote to hypocrisy, right? We're called to a sincere love, a sincere love which is expressed ultimately in the way we use our words how it is we speak and treat one another. Okay, let's pull some of these strands together. We'll see how we come out the other side. Two questions we can ask ourselves to keep pushing us toward growing in both purity and love for one another. So first things then on the topic of love. First question we can ask ourselves, do our words betray a lack of love for others? Do our words betray a lack of love for others? See, if God's big concern here is how the gospel is shaping the way we speak, it's worth asking how it is we're using our words in the family of God. Let's just consider two examples for some application that come out of this passage, the first one being constancy, this idea of uh, being faithful, sticking together, being reliable, and then self-sacrifice, laying down our lives for others. So the first one, then, constancy. You know, I'm struck at how Peter tells us to love, the shape of our love in verse 22, love one another constantly. You know, it's something I've, I've, I've said here before many times. I'll probably say it again. Well, I'm about to say it again. Um, that is, when we think about love, we tend to set limits around it, don't we? We say things like, love is give and take, and I have nothing left to give. Or to love you now would be more than you deserve. And yet the stunning thing about the gospel is that God's love for us is always love that you don't deserve. And so next time you're tempted to throw in the towel and stop loving a brother or a sister, just remember this, that no matter how badly someone wrongs you, it'll still be less to forgive them than what God forgave you. And no matter how much it may hurt to forgive someone, it'll always be less than it hurt the eternal God who forgave you. 
do, do you see? Holy love, pure love, is the kind of love that sticks. It's a thick love, one that hangs around even when it's tough, which brings us to the next point there of, of application, self-sacrificial love. See, as Peter unpacks the gospel, he puts his finger on how it is we're redeemed in verse 19. It's through the precious blood of Christ. Friends, Jesus literally shed his blood for us. He laid down his life for us in order to pay the penalty for sin so we wouldn't have to. And our love now ought to take on the same pattern. One example I heard of this, it really stuck with me. Really simple example, really. It's really stuck with me, and I want to share it with you. Uh, it comes from one of our friends um, uh, at Village Church. So he, he doesn't go to Village, but he's a friend of Village, friend of the ministry here. And he works in uni ministry in, in, in Brisbane. He once shared how uh, he never wants to be the one to end a conversation. Never wants to be the one to end a conversation. He says, in a world facing a pandemic of loneliness, he always wants to give his full attention for as long as someone needs him. It's just beautiful, isn't it? Putting the needs of someone else above your own. Great example how it is we might use our words to love others sacrificially. Okay, that's the first question. Do our words betray lack of love for others? Or are we speaking in a way that is consistent with the gospel? That is, are we sticking together? And are we laying down our lives for one another? But then secondly, and last thing, last thing we'll look at tonight, as we sort of move to think a bit more deeply about personal holiness, um, we can ask ourselves this question. Is there any sin in my life that I'm currently content with? Is there any sin in my life that I'm currently content with. So I don't know about you, but verses 15 and 16, they kind of um, cause a bit of a spiritual panic attack, don't they? You know, be holy in all your conduct, for it's written, be holy because I'm holy. Holy cow, that's a tall order. And I wonder if you, like me, you're tempted to read that and think, that's, that's actually just unattainable. Like, I just, I can't even do it. So why even try? I, I, I would just be setting myself up for failure. So how are we meant to approach this verse? Well, there's a couple ways we could look at this tonight. See, on the one hand, it'd be very easy to read this as a call to perfection in this life. That is, holiness equals perfection. Unless we've attained perfection, we are failing to be holy. We're not, quote unquote, real Christians. Now, there's actually a local movement that believes something close to that here in, in, in Queensland. Um, men and women who claim to be sinless, actually, and therefore, as I understand it, are quite content to walk into questionable or, or even downright compromising situations because they believe they've achieved perfection. They cannot sin. They're not capable of sin. Now, there's obviously a number of issues with that, but just at a practical level, the overwhelming weight of Scripture is clear that on this side of heaven, we will still experience the curse of sin. Therefore, in order for us or anyone to sort of, quote-unquote, achieve perfection in this life, well, we actually have to redefine what perfection is. That is, we have to lower the bar in order to make perfection attainable, in order for it to be something we can reach. And that, of course, without, frankly, that was a big issue with the Pharisees, wasn't it? In other words, you become a hypocrite. Claiming to be perfect, you just end up having to hide your sin. 
So on the other hand then, you could throw yourself fully on the grace of God. Okay, so if, again, if you cast your eyes over verses 18 and 19, you'll see we are fully redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Listen, this statement is true, that before God we stand forgiven. Whatever you've done, whatever you are doing, whatever you will do, cannot, will not make God love you any more or any less because of Jesus. And so, we might be tempted to think, why, why try? Why strive for holiness? Right, if Christ has forgiven me, what's the point? He's, he's forgiven me. Again, a number of issues with this, not least of which it's never the conclusion Scripture reaches. Rather, one of the major metaphors the Bible uses to describe our relationship with God is that of a husband and a wife. Right? So the Bible will say that, that God is our husband, we the church, his bride. And when we sin, the Bible says, well, it's, it's actually like a wife cheating on her husband. Or more positively, same metaphor, when a couple exchanges vows on their wedding day, do they not then strive to live every day thereafter in the fulfillment of those vows? Yes, no relationship's perfect, but do we not strive to want to fulfill the vows that we say on that day? So it is with Christ. It would be a sign of great ill health if we lived our lives just however we wanted to as a result of God bringing us into relationship with him. It'd be like a husband who gives no regard whatsoever to his vows because he entered into a covenant on his wedding day. And so, well, what's the way forward then? I want to put it to you that I think the solution is to find the tension between these two approaches and then to live in that tension by the strength of the Holy Spirit. What does that look like? It looks like striving to become more like Christ. Here's what I mean. To be holy means to be more like Jesus every day of the year and to be realistic that we're still going to fall into sin. So stay alert. Keep, keep your wits about you. Therefore, becoming more like Christ looks something like this. At no point should we be content with sin in our life, right? There should never be a time in life where we say, yeah, I'm actually okay with this level of sin. I'm, I'm all right with where I've gotten up to in my growth as a Christian. That's what it means, I think, to be increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. is this position that says we never become comfortable with the sin that we see in our lives. Rather, when the Holy Spirit does convict us of sin, we throw ourselves on the grace of Jesus Christ who promises to rescue and redeem. Now, that means that yes, sometimes we will sin. Absolutely. In our pursuit of holiness, there will be peaks and troughs. However, because of the gospel, there is always an upward trajectory to the Christian life, right? Because of the gospel, God is always taking us somewhere. Actually, he's, he's taking us closer, closer to him, closer to heaven. And so, we should be able to look back over our life as a believer, right? Over the years and then eventually the decades, we should be able to, over time, 
see a slow and gradual trend toward holiness, toward Christ-likeness, where the, where the things that sort of, the things of our former life that used to capture us, just capture us a little bit less, lose some of their shininess, where things we struggle to do, disciplines maybe in the faith that we struggle to maintain are just a little bit easier to maintain. And not because of our own doing, this growth, absolutely not, but only as a result of Christ's spirit working in our hearts to conform us more and more into the image of his son, Jesus. All right, so loving God, loving others, purity, constancy, this is practical holiness at its best. Let's pray for those things now. Our great and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have rescued and redeemed us through the life and death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray for those of us here who, are, who need comforting, those of us who are feeling the weight of our sin. I ask you, Lord, that you would help us to really um, catch afresh the gospel of grace that you proclaim to us, that we would be able to set our hope fully on the grace of Jesus Christ that's coming on that final day. Lord, for those of us who are being, um, who are caught up, have been caught up in sin, I pray, Lord, you convict us by your spirit. Not to condemn us in our guilt, but to convict us that we might repent and restore that relationship with you, that sin mars. Lord, I pray that we as a community, we'd be open and honest about our weaknesses, about our struggles, that we'd be quick to confess our sins to one another and quick to repent, quick to seek forgiveness, both from you and with you and from others and, and, and with one another here. And Lord, ultimately, look, we, we, I pray, Lord, that our love for one another would continue to grow and grow and grow as we read your word, as we pray, as we worship you, Lord. I pray that our love would be such that a watching world would be able to look in on us here and be able to glorify your name as a result of what they see. And I pray all of these things for your glory, Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to call the band back up. Uh, we're going to sing one final song together, and then Sam's going to wrap up. Um, why don't we stand, Village Church? Let's get ready to sing one final song together. <laughs>